My name is Julie Coleman. I'm a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And this morning we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 3 this morning, so we're plowing our way through it. You know, when I was first married, I had a hard time adjusting to having a new last name. Any women in here relate? Um, Now, I was happy to be Coleman. Don't get me wrong. As a matter of fact, I had been raised a Zine. Z-I-N-E, and I was always last in every alphabetical list there was in school. Even Lisa Zabolanski, Z-A, was ahead of me. (laughs) I was last. And when I was in college, my friend Lynn Vogt, with a V, and I found ourselves next to each other a lot of times in alphabetical lines. And I told her, I am sick and tired of being in the back of every alphabetical line. I and marrying up. (laughs) So she agreed with me. She married an Adams, and I married a Coleman. And I'd say we did pretty well for ourselves. (laughs) But as happy as I was to be at the beginning of the alphabet, I would periodically forget my new status, especially in our first year of marriage. Um, When someone called, we were still living at Steve's uh, parents' house for a couple of months before we got our apartment. And when someone would call the house and ask for Mrs. Coleman, I would automatically hand the phone over to my mother-in-law, because that's who that was. And on a couple occasions, when I would make parent calls, I would start off the conversation, Hi, this is your son's teacher, Julie Zine Coleman. (laughs) Um, I would slip. Um, It was very easy to slip back into my old identity when I wasn't thinking about it. Well, the Colossians were having the same kind of identity problems. Um, The reason for it was there were false uh, teachers in their local body, and they were advocating the kind of spiritual activity that was actually drawing people away from Christ. Last week, Steve gave us an in-depth look at what they were teaching, and today we're going to see Paul's solution for the problems that they were causing. So we're going to start off by reading Colossians. 3, 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. Let's pray and ask God's help through this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of Scripture. We thank you for Paul's letter to the Colossians that it was preserved and we were able to read it today because the principles he states are just as applicable and just as dynamic and transforming as they were at the time that he wrote them. 
That's thanks to your Holy Spirit, Lord, who guided that process. And we just thank you now for this opportunity to look at these words. Get me out of the way, Lord. Make these words uh, become alive in our hearts and transform us further into the image of Jesus Christ. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's kind of interesting. I was looking at the very first list, um, or the very first verse in this chapter, and I noticed something. It, looked, it kind of rang familiar to me. It was very, very similar to the same verse in, uh, or same kind of verse in Colossians 2.6, which actually began the section on the false teachers. And Colossians 2.6 says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ the Lord. 3.1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. So I, I'm pretty sure that so walk in him and keep seeking the things above. So I'm pretty sure that whoever divided the Bible into verses and chapters, it wasn't in the original Greek, I assure you. That was later on, probably in the 15th century, I think, but I'm not sure. But anyway, um, he made verse 1 the beginning of a new chapter. Why? Because Paul is obviously starting another section. He started the one section in 2.6 with this first verse and then now a second section here. But I found really interesting as I looked at these two put up side by side like that, and I saw that therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, both of those things have to do with Christ, and both of those things are things that were given to us. There was nothing we did to earn or to make things happen. It was receiving a gift that was given. And it was being raised up with him, um, not things that we have done in our own. And what are the the responses to those things that God has given us? Walk in him and keep seeking the things above. And later on he says, set your mind on the things above. Well, what are these things that we're supposed to be seeking? Well, uh, remember, the false teachers that were creating problems at Colossae were selling a certain kind of a mystical experience. They were advocating the worship of angels. They were advocating heavenly vision. Paul points them back to heaven too. But he answers their message by mentioning only one thing worth focusing on in heaven. Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. You know, we see that expression in other places in Scripture. I found two of them while I was studying. One was in Ephesians. The other was in Hebrews. You can see them there. What does the Bible, why does the Bible keep talking about Jesus being seated? And um, is he tired? Um, I don't think so. So we find the answer actually in Hebrews 10. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not only a prophet and a king, but he's a priest, a high priest at that, the high priest. The high priest's job was to sacrifice an animal on on the Day of Atonement, and it was to cover the sins of the entire nation on that day, made restitution for the sin of the nation. And Hebrews says this, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which will never take away sins. So high priests, not sitting around, but Jesus having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is pictured as seated 
because his work is done. That one sacrifice covered all our sin. So when we look at him, we keep our eyes focused on our seated Savior, we're reminded that our relationship with him is not based on anything that we've done. He did it all. It's over. So when we're tempted to take on the idea that we have to continually earn his love and approval, one look back up at him, seated, tells us, it's finished. It's already done. You know, sometimes we struggle with feeling like we're saved. We still struggle with sin. We still fail. So the false teachers were offering things to the Colossians that would make them feel better. And so uh, things to do that would make them feel more spiritual. But last week, we read this about the things they were teaching. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom But in reality, things they were promoting was actually moving them away from Christ, so so much for being spiritually, and described them as inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. So Paul now gives a reason to hope. This is what he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, to one day be revealed with him in glory. Hidden. Hidden with Christ. What does that mean? Well, you know, I started thinking about it, and I I do have one little story that happened, a little tragic story, back when my mother died. She was in a a hospital in Houston. My parents were actually from Connecticut, so they had moved there to have these experimental treatments for her leukemia, which failed, but that's where they had been the past year. And so uh, she had died in the hospital. My sister and I had made it down to the bedside before she passed away, and My dad was there. But my dad had a weekend to get out of his apartment, clear all their stuff out, get it all into a car. And, of course, we had to bring the body home. There was all kinds of complicated stuff. So we were in a hurry. So we were packing up stuff, and we were just, you know, dumping drawers into suitcases and doing what it took to get get him out of there so that he could get back home and make the funeral arrangements. And so while we were cleaning up, we just kept packing, packing, and uh, got it all done, thank goodness. Got into the car, my husband and Adam... Our son drove down. They drove the car back up. My father got in a plane. He left. Anyway, we all got ourselves to Connecticut, had the funeral. And about, I don't know, three or four days afterwards, my father said, so what did you guys do with your mother's wedding rings? I said, wedding rings? I said, well, where, where were they? And he said, oh, they were wrapped in a Kleenex on her dresser. Yep. Those rings are now in some landfill in Houston, Texas probably there for eternity, because I doubt anybody's going to be looking for diamond rings in a uh, a landfill. They're there, not hidden well. (laughs) They did not hide them in the safe place. But this is what Paul's telling us, that our lives, our life in Christ is hidden with God. And you know what? It's in a safe place. It's in heaven. No one can touch it. And one day, there'll be a time when that life is going to be unwrapped, revealed, when he returns in glory. Now, in verse 1, we were told to seek the things above. In verse 2, Paul tells us that we need to set our minds on those things. Now, the verb, the original word he uses here, is not like a purely mental or intellectual thing. It's more of an orientation of the will. So seek these things, then orient your will toward these things. That's really what the Uh, accurate translation is. 
Paul wants us to keep our minds on what God has promised and to live in the truth of that reality. You know, I know several of you are in the midst of raising toddlers. And uh, when you're raising a toddler, it's, it's easy to uh, start to despair. Will they ever be potty trained? Will they ever stop climbing into bed with us? We had four kids, three and under, and so as they grew, they grew up in kind of this clump of children. And inevitably in the morning, there'd be at least two children in bed with us, thunderstorm probably all four. We only had a queen-size bed. It was not pleasant. Will the temper tantrums ever end? So my husband, when I would despair, would always say this to me. When they're 18, they won't be climbing into bed with us. They won't be wearing diapers, and they will be reasonable, controlled people. At least that was the hope. (laughs) Someday, all this will be behind us. So in order to survive that present chaos, we always needed to keep the future in mind. Well, that's what seeking and setting our minds on the things above does for us on a spiritual level. We need to keep our future in mind. One day we're going to share Christ's glory. Our sin will be behind us and we'll finally fully experience all of the joys of our salvation for eternity. Keeping that in mind, keeping that future reality in our sights helps us to retain a heavenly perspective. So Paul says, therefore, live like your eternal security and future is true. Because it is. He says, for you have died. Now, normally we would think of dying as kind of a um, weak position. (laughs) But when we died in Christ, that's not a sign of weakness at all, but a sign of empowerment because he defeated the power of death. He was raised up to new life and he raises us up as well. You died, but you live a new life, life in Christ. Paul identifies that new life in Christ has been given as Christ in us. He says, when Christ, who is our life, It's not enough to say that our new life is shared with Christ. Paul is saying life is Christ. And you can see that that tone when he wrote the same idea to the Corinthians. He said this, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Christ also may be manifested in our body uh, for we are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Every time we choose our new, new life over our old, we show Christ in us to the world. So how do we choose life over death? It's very simple. Paul says this, Consider yourself dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. That considering something dead reminded me of a cute little story that uh, Melanie told me after her first date with Chris. They had been wandering through Target, um, loath to make, let the evening end, and um, she asked him what his favorite candy was, and, uh, and he asked her what hers was. They were in the candy aisle. She told him that um, her really favorite candy was those little strawberry candies, and you probably know what they are. They're, they're like shaped like a strawberry, and inside there's kind of like a liquidy strawberry center, but they're hard candy on the outside, and the wrapping makes them look like a strawberry with the red bottom and the green on the top. You all know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So that was her favorite candy, she told Chris, 
And he kind of rolled his eyes at it. And he said, well, what other, you know, do, do you have any other? And she said, well, I really loved airheads when I was a kid, but I don't think they make them anymore. He said, oh, they make airheads. She said, no, I haven't seen them for many years. He said, I'll bet you I can find them in an hour because they weren't at Target. And she said, all right. So they got in the car. <laughs> Interesting first date. And they drove to 7-Eleven. And sure enough, there were airheads right there. So he's giving her a hard time because she thought they were, you know, extinct, all that kind of stuff. So they're in line. And so they're paying for it. And Chris said to the guy at the register, so tell me, do you also carry those strawberry candies? And he described the candy that Melanie had described. And the guy said, no, we don't have that. And he said, oh, too bad, because I'm going to go visit my grandmother, and I know she really loves those candies. <laughs> so Melanie was, so they, she didn't say anything, but as they're walking out the store, she said to him, you are dead to me. <laughs> dead to me, dead to me. That's what Paul was telling the Colossians. These things were dead to you. They're dead to them. They make a person... They mark a person, excuse me, that does not know God and that had never received new life in Christ. And he says it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now, be very careful here. This is not a threat to you that if you have some of these things, you are a son of disobedience. That's not what Paul is saying. You are in no, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are in no fear of wrath ever. Jesus took your wrath, uh, the wrath of God meant for you, and he took that on the cross. The sons of disobedience, they're the walking dead men. They're the ones that have rejected Christ's message of salvation. And they are not us. So what is he saying then? Well, our sin's been nailed to the cross. Paul's saying here that those things are what characterize, characterize those who do not believe, who have not trusted Christ for this salvation, and because of that are destined to God's wrath. It's what marks them, those other guys, not people who believe in Christ. Do we want to look like we're marked like that? Believers who continue to live like earth is our only consideration, we're ignoring our new reality. We're just like a butterfly who spends his time flopping around in the mud, wishing for a better life. And you look at that picture and say, butterfly, you have wings. Soar! Get out of there! There's beautiful flowers and pollen and things that you can see and you can fly high up in the air. Why are you dwelling in the muck and in the mire? Well, the false teachers have been promoting self-abuse, living under legalistic rules, working themselves up to ecstatic experiences like visions and worshiping angels. They were telling people to live only in the light of their sin. And Paul was writing this, look above that. Those things are of the earth. They are dead to you. They no longer have power over you. To remain in those things is to wallow in the mud. Lift your head and look up. Look to where our Savior is seated. A reassurance that there's nothing left to be done and respond to what you see by living in the freedom of that reality. Because those things, they're not appropriate to your new reality. Back in 2.12, he told the Colossians, you, your old self, were buried with him in baptism. Now, he says, consider your body dead to these things. Stop wallowing in the muck and the mire. It's like David, the psalmist, wrote this. 
He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. To keep our focus on anything less than Christ is to jump right back into the mud. The final verses of our passage today give us some insight into the collateral damage that the false teachers had left. Paul says, put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech to your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Not only had the false teachers drawn people's focus away from Christ, they had caused dissension as evidence to what he's telling them. You know, I was working at a camp uh, for all the summers that I was in college, and one of the, it was a denominational camp at the time, and so one of the churches that were part of that denomination had people coming up regularly all summer long, and we started hearing about this problem that one of these churches in Rhode Island was having. There was a guy, uh, at the beginning of summer we heard, that there was a guy who had decided to follow a doctrine, a certain doctrine, not necessary to salvation, (laughs) but that was not really accepted in the church. It wasn't something that was part of their statement of faith, um, which was fine. He could believe that. No one was going to stop him, but he wouldn't quietly believe this thing. He had to try to convert everyone in the congregation, and it was against the spiritual guidelines of the elders. But he's being pretty obnoxious about it and so convincing that a few people actually became convinced that his doctrine was correct. And by the end of the summer, we heard that the church was pretty much divided on that line of that doctrine, on one uh, one camp or the other. By Christmas, the church had split, and they eventually closed their doors. I believe, because of this verse, that the same kind of scenario scenario was in place in Colossae. People were preaching their things and moving people into their camp and causing division. We do know that it wasn't a tolerant, I'll believe what I believe and we'll stay friends kind of an atmosphere. Um, Evidence of the trouble it was causing, I found in chapter 2. He said, Paul said, see to it that no one takes you captive. No one will lead you away from the original Greek, lead you away as a captive from the truth, literally carry you off. He also said, no one is to act as your judge. He said, let no one defraud you. And that word, uh, if you look at the original language, is, a, is kind of like what an umpire does, calling the, uh, the shots in the game. They were inflated without cause. They were puffed up. They were proud. And then he says, why do you submit yourself to their decrees? Things were getting nasty. I believe that from all these things that we read in chapters 2 and 3. And they had escalated to anger, slander, and abusive speech, even lying to each other. You know, division over some doctrine, lesser doctrine, or some circumstances, it really can be death to a church. It's not long before people can barely remember the issue And then pretty soon, they're angry and bitter with each other. When Paul was speaking about his anger to the, uh, excuse me, when Paul was speaking about anger, not his anger, in his letter to the Ephesians, he warned, don't be, when you're angry, don't give the devil a foothold. We can't help when we feel angry, but we can help what we do to express that. 
Because Satan, when given the chance, will fan the flames. And he will, his intention is to destroy that local body of Christ. So Paul reminds them, you laid aside your old self with those evil practices. You've put on the new self. And then he says this, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of Christ. You'll notice that present tense. We are being renewed. We're all works in progress. All of us. There's no distinction. Paul says between Gentile and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, uh, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free. We're all on the same playing field. We all have areas in us that need work. So what do we do? We need to treat other people with the same grace and kindness that God is extending toward us as he works on those areas in our lives. Finally, Paul ends with this statement. Christ is all and in all. When we set our minds on him, we have the whole picture. Right there. Right there. Keeping our eyes on him is the remedy to division within the body between individuals. Setting our mind on him would give the Colossians the perspective needed to keep their church healthy, growing, and strong. So we come to the most, one of the most important parts of the message, so what? How do Paul's words to the Colossians help us today? Because that's really what we're here for, aren't we? How do we apply this whole thing to our lives? Well, I was thinking about it, and God has really gathered a very eclectic group of people here at New Hope Chapel. Some people here have a Baptist or a Bible church background. Some are coming from Reformed churches. Some are former Catholics. Some are from the Charismatic Movement, and some are raised as Methodists. And there might even be more. Forgive me if I missed you. <laughs> but each denomination, every, every group that we've come from, they all have their own set of doctrines. They have their own rules of how the church should be governed and their own traditions. And even beyond a denominational difference, how about political difference or lifestyle difference? We all have a lot of things that are different about us and make us individual. We're eclectic, all right. Yet we operate, for the most part, as a unified body. Well, how is that even possible? Because it's not that we don't have disagreements. I can tell you, even in our women's Bible study, we come to different conclusions from each other from time to time. That's okay. Elders sometimes make decisions or recommendations that we might not agree with um, or like. The teaching team is pretty eclectic itself. And um, sometimes that we might preach some idea that you're not crazy about. Various people and other kinds of leadership here in the church, like the children's ministry, the missions team, or even the building and grounds might decide things you might not approve. Jesus knew that differences would be an issue in the church. He, uh, unity would be very important to them when it came time to lead the established church to his 12. So he told them this, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even, even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people people that agree with you, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? We need to understand that our unity needs to run deeper than the average secular group. And make no bones about it. Unity is important. At least Jesus thought so. This is what he prayed in John 17. I ask that they may all be one so that the world would believe that you sent me. Our unity as a church directly impacts our ability to reveal Christ to the world 
which is that great commission that he gave his disciples that we're supposed to be fulfilling. So, but does, how does a church like ours, a group that has so many different ideas and, and uh, different on so many levels, how do we stay unified? It may not be a problem right now. We're pretty unified as a group, but you know what? Someday there's going to be a thing that's going to cause us to really struggle with this. So I thought it was a really good idea to kind of harp on it for a couple of minutes. And Steve had me remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo? Back in 1836, Texas was still a part of Mexico. Um, several months previously, the Texans had driven um, all of the Mexicans off Texas, Texas land. And on um, March 6th, the Mexican army, and then they, they set up shop in the Alamo as kind of a defense for that surrounding area. Well, on March 6th, several months later, the Mexican army advanced on the Alamo. There were, after reinforcements, there were about 200 men there ready to fight to keep that position. The Mexicans had thousands, thousands of men. There were two attacks in which the small group were able to fend off the army, but the leader, Dickinson, looked over the thousands massed to invade, visible over the wall, and he knew it was hopeless. So he gathered his men on the night before the final attack, and this is what he said. This is a dire situation. We are surely going to die, and I'm going to give you a chance to leave now. You can escape. You can go now or put your lives aside and die for the cause of freedom. And out of all of those men, all but one chose to stay. Every man then died in battle that next day. Remember the Alamo was the unifying cause that eventually moved Texans to fight for their independence from Mexico. A month later, they attacked the Mexican army and defeated them, get this, in 18 minutes. During the fighting, many of the Texans repeatedly cried, Remember the Alamo! as they slaughtered the Mexican troops. The eclectic group of farmers, statesmen, businessmen had become unified by what? A common cause, the cause for freedom. The way to unity here at New Hope Chapel is to look beyond ourselves to the common cause. Our answer to unity in spite diversity is the same that Paul gave the Colossians in our passage today. We have to look outside ourselves for the power. Set your mind on things above. The victory of Christ over death and the sin that condemned us is key to living our new life in Christ in unity. And setting our minds on him will make us a church that will effectively reveal Christ in us to the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this powerful passage. We thank you for um, your, your love and your grace that you supplied everything that we need. We thank you, Lord, that nothing is dependent on us, that it's about your power, and we ask, God, that you would help us to remember to always keep our gaze in the heavens where Christ is seated and where our life is hidden, and that those realities, Lord, would dictate how we respond to everything that happens in this earth below. This is not the end, God. We want to focus um, all of what we are on what you've given us and what still awaits us. Help us to be faithful to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.